Hello, 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 That's Not Spit fans, and welcome to the secret message of today's episode. Today's secret message is actually for our host, Ryan, and comes at the beginning of the episode instead of the end. Ryan, I know in the uh, ad you're about to read that you're going to warn the audience that there may be some audio inconsistencies in your episode, but I've fixed all that, and you have nothing to worry about. Love you, bud. And remember, hmm, I guess Ryan already knows, doesn't he? <laughs> hey, everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into this awesome episode with David Cohen, the associate principal slash third trumpet of the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra, I have a few things that I want to mention. Number one, David was using AirPods for the beginning part of this interview as headphones and a microphone. The AirPods ran out of battery, so we had to switch to a different set of headphones, which used a different microphone. So when you're listening to it, if it sounds like the sound changed just a little bit on David's voice, that's what's going on for all of you who might hear it and be like, that sounds weird. That's all it is. Second, you want to make sure you stick around past the outro of the episode to hear the secret message from our mastering engineer, Brandon Yoakum. And number three, I want to take a second to thank our wonderful sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest level of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. Have you ever set your trumpet on the ground, then picked up your phone, and then while you were texting, you actually dropped your phone on your trumpet and then dented it? Because I have. When that happens, Houghton Horns is here for you. At Houghton Horns, they do all their repair work in-house, so you know you're getting one of their skilled craftsmen doing the work to bring your instrument back to 100%. They also do customizations, so if you were looking to customize your instrument for your specific needs, look no further than Houghton Horns. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoutonHorns.com for more information. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I'm here with my very bestie, my very best bestie, <laughs> David Cohen. He is the associate principal slash third trumpet with the Milwaukee Symphony. You've been there for a while now, like seven, eight years, right? Uh, this is my ninth season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were a principal trumpet in Tucson before that. Um, David and I have known each other since 2010. We went to Tanglewood together, uh, instantly forged a forever friendship. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we've just, we've known each other for a long time. We've been through a lot of ups and downs together. And so I'm excited to be able to, um, interestingly, I, I said this to Steve Woomert when I interviewed him too, that like, 
you know, I don't know if I've ever sat down with Steve and been like, tell me about yourself, you know, because I was right, like yeah. out of control at that point in time in my life. <laughs> so it's going to be nice for me with you to actually sit down and just like talk to you and get to know you a little bit all of these years yeah. later because I'm not out of, as out of control anymore. So um, before we get started, I just I appreciate you giving me a little bit of your time. This is going to be fun. I'm, I'm grateful. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm pumped. Yeah, you seem pumped. <laughs> this is as pumped as I get. So. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's just start with uh, uh, wherever you got started with the Trump. I don't even know if I know this story, but yeah. uh, however, wherever you got started with Trumpet and kind of follow your education to where you are now. All right. So let's see. I started on the violin in fourth grade. Yeah, me too. And that did. Did, did you really? Yeah. Yeah. It didn't last that long for me. Like, <laughs> I don't know, six months or something. And then. Um, my family had these like CD-ROMs that, uh, you know, you'd put into the computer and it would show you all the different instruments of the orchestra. And I remember just like clicking on the trumpet and it, it just did. And I thought that was like such an amazing sound. So I, I, I started playing the trumpet in, uh, played violin in third grade, I think. So then I played, I started trumpet in like fourth or fifth grade and pretty much immediately quit because I thought it was too hard. Yeah. Um, and then I switched to euphonium and I played euphonium for two years. No way. I didn't know that. Yeah. And um, for whatever reason, I just like had this feeling like I want to try the trumpet again. So I think I was in something like sixth or seventh grade and I just decided like to give it another shot with the trumpet. And um, I studied with this this wonderful guy named Paul Bassa, who taught at um, like the local music store. And sadly, we lost Paul to COVID last year. So that oh. was really terrible. He's just such a wonderful man and um, kind of exposed me to like, exposed me to jazz playing mostly at first and i think you know that's kind of what got me fired up um because i think when i'm when i was in like sixth or seventh grade i didn't even know that classical trumpet was like a thing outside of like you know middle school band so i think playing jazz was just really exciting for me and paul was such a good teacher and um like i said just really lit that fire inside of me so i studied with him for until I was in high school and um, I hadn't really gotten that serious about it. And like when I got into high school, but my high school had a really good music program and I started getting more and more involved, it, you know, through high school. And I remember Paul saying, I've taught you everything I can teach you. It's time for you to move on, which looking back is like kind of a stunning thing to think about a teacher saying that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like kind of putting aside their ego and being like, I think that the best thing for you would be to go study with somebody else. So just thinking about that is kind of unbelievable to me. But so um, then I started studying with probably the person who like put me on the track for classical music and got me really excited about um, trumpet playing and solo trumpet playing and orchestra trumpet playing, which was Bruce Dougherty. Um, who's a teacher in Chicago. And he was the first person that 
kind of introduced me to the Arnold Jacobs, Chickowitz, Hersep, you know, that kind of quote unquote school of playing. And I just like could not get enough of that. Um, and so that kind of, it, around that point in my life, like I think I, I was, I don't know, 15 or so, so, 15, 16, it just like, it went from this like casual interest to like obsession. Mm. Um, so I had this great teacher and, um, you know, I was living in the suburbs of Chicago. And so I was just like surrounded by a lot of great brass history and brass playing. I started going, um, I mean, the first thing I started really doing was I would just, you know, this was before like streaming services. So I would go to the library and just check out classical music CDs. And my library had um, Hokan Hardenberger's first CD, the famous classical trumpet concertos. Yeah, yeah. Something that had like him playing the Haydn, Hummel, and the Richter and all that stuff. And I remember getting that and um, I would just like check it out week after week after week after week, I guess it didn't really occur to me to buy it. Um, and I would like, I'm not kidding. I would listen to that CD, like a minimum of two times a day all the way through. Um, and so I started getting really into recordings and then I started going to a lot of concerts. I started seeing the Chicago symphony play. And that was, that would have been like around 2003 or something. And the, when I first started seeing the CSO play, that was r- around the time that Herseth had just left. And so Mark Reidenauer was playing um, acting principal. So I got to hear him play a ton, which, I j- you know, it's probably a combination <laughs> of him being unbelievable and me being so young and excited. But he just, his playing was like, like fire it's just so exciting and it just like i was just enthralled listening to him and and then chris martin joined and i got to hear him a ton and obviously chris is unbelievable and the same you know the same type of feelings uh i got from listening to him and i started going to see the chicago chamber musicians where i got to hear barbara and charlie play for the first time so i just kind of i was surrounded by a lot of really great brass playing and trumpet playing and um i guess around like my sophomore year of high school i started thinking like well maybe i want to maybe i want to do this and so um i knew that northwestern was a great school and i knew that you know i'd played for barbara and charlie a couple times when i was in high school and um they were obviously unbelievable and so yeah i auditioned for northwestern and wound up going there and i studied with barbara um and a little bit with charlie and chris martin and um yeah so i was there for four years did got my bachelor's and then um toward at the end of my senior year of college i won um principal trumpet in the tucson symphony and so then I went there and was there for three years um, and then came to Milwaukee after that. And I've been here for nine. This is my ninth year. If we're counting last year as a year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
between um, eight and nine years. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to hear your story because, you know, being in Chicago, like basically every child would have access to such great brass playing, but maybe not every child ends up sort of following that path. So it's kind of cool to see it's a combination of because you could easily say something like, well, you were born in Chicago. So like that's like, you know, you just have all this access that maybe like I didn't have. I mean, I had great brass playing, but not the Chicago mm -hmm. Symphony. But also it was coupled with great teaching and your own yeah. sort of curiosity about, you know, I wasn't listening to Hook on CD for like you know, two days, two times a day. So it's cool to see that it's kind of a combination of factors. It's not just like happenstance or circumstantial right. that where you happen to be. Um, I ask everybody who studied with Barbara and Charlie this question because everybody wants to know what their secret is. Uh, but it's kind of fun to ask students what they think or former students what they think the secret is because everybody has a little bit different take mm -hmm. on it. So um, how would you if someone came up to you and said, what's the secret? How do they have so much success? <laughs> what would your what would your takeaway be from your time at Northwestern and possibly even reflecting on it all this time later? Um, gosh, that's a really good question. I think with Barbara, it's just kind of this, she had such, she has such outrageously high standards for her students. Um, and I remember at the beginning of school really struggling with that because like, no matter how much you want to kind of get your butt kicked when you get to school, um, I mean, she just kicks your butt even harder than <laughs> like you, you think possible. And so it was kind of, I felt like I just had this like really strong feeling that I wanted to make her proud of my playing. And I didn't feel like I was doing that immediately, you know? Yeah, and yeah. it took me a little while to realize that like, this is the best thing for me. Somebody who will not, let me get to a point and say like, yeah, that's good enough. That's, that's good. Um, so I would say if there's anything that I feel like is super different about them, it's just that they never let me get to a point where they said that's good enough. You know, it was always, you know, this, uh, you know, this is something I try to use in my teaching too. It's like compliment and then, what can be better? And so it's like the, it, they gave enough encouragement that I knew like, okay, I'm on the right path. Like I'm doing things right enough that I'm not a total failure at this, but it's like, I would, you know, go up one step and then Barbara would kind of motion to these 45 other steps that I could, <laughs> you know, take after that. So I guess, does that help? Is, uh, that, yeah. is that a reasonable answer? I would agree with that. I mean, you know, I've struggled in my, in my life in general, but applied to this specific thing. I've struggled with this idea that like, I'll work as hard as I possibly have to work to sort of reach that particular quote, good enough, if you want to call it that. Right. And so it, for me, it was, it was also difficult working with someone like her, because like you said, there was always another layer, you know? And I remember... Yeah. I don't know if maybe you ever did this, but I was I was always looking to her to validate me as a yes. player. So like when I would get ready for an audition, I would I would play around for her or something like that. And then she would be like, Well, this sounds good. And I'd be like, What do you think they're gonna think? Like, 
and she's like, I think if you play like that, they're going to think it's beautiful. And I was like, I guess I'm ready to win the job now. You know, like, that's like, <laughs> that's like the yeah. thing. I just needed her to basically say like, you're good to go. And so it's very interesting to have left that environment then and to have lost that validation. Right. Yeah. And then being like, that's like kind of why I developed all these different things I've developed since then is like, how do I gain some of my own authority back into right. the process for myself. And so that's something I feel like, at least I perceive that you have always been able to do is you've been, I remember when you were in Tucson, you had, you know, etude goals up on that board and things like that. Yeah. So you've remained very diligent. So how did you manage getting some validation from your teachers with kind of owning the process of wanting to keep going and being able to set your own goals and stuff like that? Do you feel like you were yeah, good at that or was it a struggle for you? That was, and honestly continues to be a struggle for me because um, I think a good teacher's job is to like gently hold your hand and take you through the process and guide you. Like they're not pushing you in at all. They're just kind of showing you what you can, what you can accomplish if you go down this path. Right. And at any stumble, you know, they'll kind of gently, hold your hand and, you know, get you back on the path. And when you don't have that, any, when I didn't have that anymore, I, I got a little lost for a while. Um, and I think that it helped that I had these, um, that I had a gig right after college to kind of test things out with peers. And I had, you know, there's great musicians in Tucson that I played for all the time. Um, so at first I just, I started seeking that elsewhere, you know, um, asking other people what they thought of, you know, I'd play an etude or an excerpt or whatever and ask them what they thought. And so I started searching for it a lot. And then what I realized, um, pretty quickly is that my best friend is a recorder. Um, I just started recording myself a ton and I did that a little bit in college, but it also wasn't as easy um, when I was in college because I had this like gigantic like <laughs> brick that recorded and it would go in the background when I, so I couldn't really hear myself that well. But like, you know, now we've got phones and, you know, recording equipment everywhere that it's, it's a lot easier. So um, turning my practice sessions in, into something that revolves around playing and then listening back and then playing and then listening back. And I think when I was younger, I kind of just went through the motions of that. I'd like, you know, go into a practice room and press record on my, you know, my Ederol recorder, play for an hour, press stop, put it in my bag and never listen to it or like yeah. listen to five minutes of it. And I think I found that, you know, if, if I don't have a teacher anymore, my ears have to be my teacher, right? And that's what, you know, Barbara kind of taught me how to teach myself, I guess. And so if I can now sit down and play through three bars of an etude, record it, pick up my phone, listen to it, and decide exactly what needs to change. And then, like, step two is to do step one again, but with the knowledge from step one that is mimicking what having another set of ears for you is. Cause it's the same thing. Like I'm sure when I listen to this, the first thing that I'm going to think is, is that really what my voice sounds like? 
you know, and I'm not hearing that right now. I'm hearing, I'm like thinking about our conversation, but there's only so much that I can, um, attain about how I sound when I'm either speaking or playing. Right. So I think actually having an external device that plays back what I just did so I can really truthfully analyze what just happened and then make practice goals based on that, that I think that's how I kind of learned to deal with that. Yeah. I record myself uh, often uh, through social media and I'm doing a thing where I'm recording the beach etudes to kind of challenge myself in that regard. But I find a lot of resistance to um, recording myself, right? Because it's like some it's almost like I don't want to hear, right? I don't yeah. want to hear. I want to believe in my head. I'm learning this is a fixed mindset. I, I didn't understand this until recently, but I want to believe that everything I'm doing is already great enough. That there's like basically I've I'm there, and yeah. I I can I can hold the idea that yeah, like I'm not there, and I have growth left because of course I do. But it's like part of me really wants it to just to be like, there's no more work. I've put in enough work. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, I totally know what you mean. I think that uh, one thing I was I've been thinking about recently is, um, you know, during the there's a great meditation center here, and our um, second trombone player in the orchestra, Kirk Ferguson, is um, an instructor there, and he's like gotten me into meditation much more so than. Um, before I came here. And so uh, during the pandemic, I, I was doing this class that he was giving and he talked a lot about um, being like really gentle with yourself and allowing yourself to, telling yourself that you're good enough no matter what. I mean, this wasn't music related. So it was just kind of this acceptance of like, I am a complete person. I'm good enough. Full stop, period. There's no like qualifiers to that sentence, right? So I think that combining something that causes me to be super vulnerable, like recording myself 40 times in a practice session with this mentality of no matter what goes on in this practice session, I'm I'm good enough as a human being. Like nothing is going, me being able to play through a top tones etude without missing every single high C isn't going <laughs> to make me a better human being than me missing every single high C, you know? So I think that like the pairing of the vulnerability and the reassurance of not holding my identity to how successful my practice or performance is that's kind of where I find some solace, I guess. Uh, I find that to be difficult to balance then with like achievement. Yeah. Right. Because achievement requires that we make a certain amount of progress. And like, it might be, I don't want to say it's easy for us to say, but for a level of, a, you know, we have a job and we have a salary, yeah. we've accomplished a thing that a lot of people want to accomplish. So it's like, Maybe now we can release some of the achievement from it, and it's just like a discipline that we do, which I would argue is how everybody should see it, but it's much harder to do that when you're trying to have achievement be the end goal of what you're right. doing. It's harder to be like, I'm good enough, when you're literally saying it's not good enough yet, like Barber's standards. Totally, totally. I know? think the difference is not allowing um, the my playing isn't at a high enough level 
to bleed into, I'm not good enough as a person. I, I feel like I'm jumping to a more of a philosophical idea kind of quickly, but like, I just think it's so easy to get our identity wrapped up in our playing that I found when I'm kind of in the throes of having my identity being a trumpet player, if my trumpet playing isn't going well, then in my mind, me being a person, person isn't going well. And if I can right. kind of challenge that to think like, I'm enough as a person, you know, I'm enough to my, my family and my friends as a person, my playing is a separate entity that I want to get to the highest level. And in terms of what you said, you know, it's hard to balance that with kind of like realistic achievement. I think there, there's like this um, kind of leap of faith that you just have to go through the, you have to trust the process, you know, and that real progress generally is really slow. Um, you know, and kind of that, the learning curve, like we get kind of addicted to that really quick turnaround that where we start getting a lot better and then we start to plateau. And as long as the plateau isn't that, as long as it's like a tiny curve or a tiny upward slope, that's where we just kind of have to trust the process. And so the other thing that I tell my students often is that I'll keep the recordings that I have of myself. And two months later, I'll go back and listen to myself playing the same exercise or etude or whatever that I'm working on now than I was two months ago. And in my head, before I listen to that, I'm going to think it sounds exactly the same or worse, <laughs> but actually being <laughs> um, um, kind of presented with the contrast of how I sounded two months ago doing this versus now, that's where I can realize, oh, this process is actually working. It's just so slow that I can't always tell, you know? And so, I don't know, it's kind of like thinking about compound interest. Like if at the end of my a practice session, I can be a quarter of a percent better than I was at the beginning of that, like in 10 years, that's a massive gain. Right, right. I totally agree with everything you've said. I think one of the challenges, you know, you've described a process that you use of recording yourself regularly and listening back and being critical. You know, I've developed various processes or or whatever that I use in my practice, and it has helped. You know, the ultimate goal is to be able to see progress of some sort, right? right. But one of the things that can be difficult is when there is no process that someone is giving themselves over to saying trust the processes of like no help, right? Right. Yeah, And so I think that's one of the things I believe in a lot is not necessarily here's how you play the trumpet, but also like here's a process you can follow that, you know, maybe it's not the I think sometimes we get into this like dogmatic. Here's the process to follow because I do it. It's the one that you should do rather than like, here's a process that works for me. You should try it and then adjust it based on the results of it. Yes. So that we're saying you don't have a process, so any process will be better than that. Yes. But yeah. it's not the end. That's that's sort of the beginning point of where you might head from there. So what kinds of evolution, if it has, has your process of recording yourself, has it gone through any evolution over the course of time of what it started as and how it's changed based on like how you have changed as a person or your work demands or anything like that? Yeah, so I mean, 
in terms of recording, and I'll talk about something like another aspect after this, but in terms of recording, one thing that I learned pretty quickly, I'll say, is that recording large chunks of practice, unless I'm playing through something, like unless I'm kind of performing something in my practice session for the sake of performing it to see how it goes from start to finish. Except for that, it's much better for me to do small chunks and listen to small chunks. Because even if I'm like, if I record five minutes, that's so much time. By the end of, by the end of playing for five minutes and then listening for five minutes, like I'm 10 minutes past what I started. And so for me, it's more like if I can record 30 seconds, 15 seconds, whatever, um, and go back and really take a deep dive into what, how is this matching what's in my head? How is this not matching what's in my head? And um, yeah, so that's kind of how the recording process for me has changed in my practice. Um, beyond that, I think having just like kind of a thirst for learning different processes, processes um, has helped me a lot too because you know, it's kind of like when a student asks you, what do you do to warm up? Like, I can tell you that answer, but I mean, it's become such a personalized thing over the years. Like, it changes all the time based on what is going on in my life playing-wise. And um, I found that that aspect of the process, it's like, that's just the foundation. And making sure that my playing is at the healthiest level it can be is akin to making sure that the foundation of a house that you're about to build is sound. And no matter what, if that foundation isn't sound, if you build the most beautiful house in the world, it's going to blow away, you <laughs> yeah, know? Yeah. And so like, yeah. I think that the older I get, the more, I realize, I remember Barbara always saying, the more fundamentals you do, the more you realize you need to do, you know? And it's kind yeah, of the same yeah. way. Like if I'm playing a lot of concerts, it's easy to be like, I'm in good shape. I'm strong enough. I'm, you know, I played last night until 10 o'clock and, you know, now it's 8 a.m. I, I don't really need to warm up as much. And that's where things start to go really awry uh, for me. So I think just having that, um, extremely high standard for like response, um, and, you know, just fast, easy air all the time. Just everything is, cause it, uh, I often think about like, if my response is off 1%, that's going to translate to like 40% in my playing. Because as the yeah, right. day goes on, like that 1% is going to chip away and I'm working harder and harder and harder. So if every, mo so it's kind of, uh, again, it's like everything that I say goes back to something Barbara told me, but not skipping steps in my warm up has become more and more and more important as I've gotten older. Because, you know, when I, I think when I was younger, I'd kind of buzz a little bit play, make sure I can play high, low, and articulate, and then what else is there? But now <laughs> I think so much about like going from response to production to articulation 
to range, to flexibility, and making sure that I'm not skipping over one of those things because that's when you know the 1% of your production or whatever starts to chip away at the rest of your playing. I'm not I sure if that answered I, your question. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I remember you were always, I, I feel like you were always a little bit more process-oriented than I was even. So like with warming up, sometimes I just wouldn't warm up. I remember at Tanglewood, I would just do it. And I remember one time I like warmed up on the piccolo for mm -hmm. just to just, so I was sitting next to you and I started warming up the piccolo just so you'd be like, what are you doing right now? <laughs> like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it's just kind of funny because I, I would agree with you now. There's like sort of a step-by-step -step thing that I care about now way more than I cared about then. And yeah. I still feel like I'm pretty flexible and sort of elastic from day to day, which is good. But it's like I kind of don't. I, I take more care with it, you know, as these these days than I than I did then. And it's not even from... And I remember I was going to ask you this question. I'll segue into it. Yeah. It's not even from a like a like a I, I need this to do my job. It's from like a quality perspective. It's like if I do this, I play better on average more of the time, which then results in playing better on average as like sort of a habit. Absolutely. And that's one thing I've that's one thing I've really changed my mind on. And I'm curious for your for your thoughts. Is my my framework of practicing now is how do I set it up so like. I sound good as much of the time as possible rather than like I sound bad and I'm gradually getting better. I want to sound good. And if I have to play things slower to do it, I'll do it. If I have to slur things, I don't care. Right. But I want to sound good because I want that to become the way I just make sound on the instrument. I'm curious if you think something similar or if you have a different approach, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that um, over the years, I've kind of come to realize that the slowest way is usually the fastest, you know? And when I think about the things that, it, you know, I, I'm not really sure what the alternative is, but when I think about the things that I just kind of like tried to learn really quickly on the trumpet and got sort of good at them and just let them be for a long time, like those are the things n later on in my career that I had to work really hard at undoing bad habits. And so now if, you know, can I, can I work on this etude at 75% tempo and learn all the notes? Probably, but it'll probably go a lot quicker if I do it at 40%, you know, like it'll stick a lot easier. And, um, I don't know, I remember Tom Rolfe saying something about like, your morning session is all about like setting yourself up for success. And I guess that that's true for when you're practicing whatever you're practicing in order to perform it someday. Like just because you can play through this etude at almost the measure mark, mark or uh, the metronome mark, um, it, that doesn't mean that that's the most efficient way to go about doing it or learning it. Um, yeah, I mean, what I what I've started to come to that it really makes sense to me. So I'll share with mm -hmm. you, see what you think. Is like like what you're talking about with forty percent. Like it's an arbitrary number, but let's use it. Yeah. Like there's a hundred, there's seventy five, and there's forty. Well, maybe at the beginning of this, you could play it pretty well at a hundred. Maybe you'd miss mm -hmm. some stuff, but like you can get through it and it's recognizable. 
And then you could do it at 75 where you'd probably get all of the notes that you would want, but like it might be difficult. You might struggle a little bit, but you can. And then there's 40% where you could basically play it with every ounce of the quality that you want, the sound you want, the centering you want, the articulation you want. And then you'd ask yourself, well, if like 40% is what everybody wants, but then you have to get it back to a hundred and you have to, like you said, it's slower in the, in the short term, but not only do you learn it deeply, but you probably get better through the process and raise your overall level of playing. So it's like, you could be impatient and just say, Oh, I can do it. So what does it matter? Or you can slow down a little bit and then have to do that every single time, or you can learn it deeply and be forever better. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's kind of like, if we look to people who have more experience in life than us for a variety of things, whether it's um, philosophy, religion, politics, whatever, like we kind of trust that, well, if it works for these people and it, I might want you to cut this out. This is, this analogy is not really working in my head. Okay. So um, let me start that over. Like, all right, I remember seeing Hokan give a master class where he talked about when he gets a new piece, he plays it as slowly and softly as possible. And what that does is it shows him where any potential holes are, right? So I love that from both a learning the music standpoint and like a response standpoint, like even if I get something that's kind of slow and I'm trying to learn it, I can kind of blast through it and say like, I I know this now. Or if I take it really slow and kind of look at it as like programming, you know, like deep programming and finding where am I gonna miss or when I miss, why did I miss? And going back and kind of like patching over that, that's what kind of helps me. Yeah, I, I gosh, I couldn't I couldn't agree with this philosophy more for sure. Um, and it's interesting because I like it as a diagnostic tool, like what you were talking about. It's like you quickly find out what things you're already good at and where you might have to spend a little bit of extra time. Right. And the other thing, and I'm curious for how you would expand upon this, the other major shift is just changing your definition of success from I can get through this at the tempo pretty well to I am playing at the quality that I want at whether it's the written tempo or some other arbitrary tempo. Like the tempo becomes a metric for like managing quality at various right. levels of coordination, right? right. Um, but yeah, you're basically changing it from, I just want to get through this to my definition of success is playing at the quality I want with no compromise. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I totally agree with that. And I, I think that it becomes a lot easier to convince yourself of that when you're constantly getting music that you need to learn in a quick period of time. Um, like when I think about being in school, I was constantly working on music that i I shouldn't say constantly. I I was often working on music that I never performed. You know, I'm talking about like etudes or sometimes I wanted to learn a solo just so I could learn it. Um, or if I was going to perform it, it was like, eh, maybe I'll perform it in two years. And now it's like when I get a stack of music and I have two weeks to learn it, like I don't have the luxury of seeing how it goes if I play it at 
almost tempo or you know whatever your metric is like i have to do it the most efficient way because i might not be able to learn the music if i don't and again like kind of thinking about somebody like hokan who has so much experience playing the hardest music written for our instrument at like the highest level he's doing that too I just don't think that that's a coincidence. Like he's not just doing it to show <laughs> off. Like it works going really slow. And I remember um, my teacher in high school, Bruce Doherty, would always say, uh, "Fast music is just slow music sped up." Yeah, I like that. That's yeah. cool. And your point about Hokan is well taken. You know, this is kind of why I'm interested in in diving into what I'm doing and trying to share these ideas. Is because I'm starting to think it's not. The idea of practice as a discipline may not be as personable or personalized or customized uh, as we may think it is. It's like maybe the music somebody's working on is different or the way they tackle it, but there might be these underlying principles that like all great practicers take advantage of. And in my opinion, those are the things that we should be talking about on a regular basis. Like, so you're talking about slow practice. You're talking about recording yourself. You're talking about having a mental model. So if you're not sure what it should sound like, go listen to a recording or go play for somebody to get some outside input. Like these things are things that all great players are doing, you know, score study, things like that. What music you're applying it to might be different based on your ability range. Right. Um, but yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think these are things that we can then like look at Hokan and say, well, what is his process? Maybe I can, and if he's shared about it, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. right. Maybe yeah. you have that information, somebody else, but the, the fact that we're sharing processes hopefully helps other people begin to trust a process by seeing what that's like. Absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. What's something that you, what's something that you, uh, when you were in school, this is, I've never asked this question before, but, uh, I've kind of interested. What's something that you feel like you did in school that you're like really glad you did. (laughs) And what's, you know, like, you're like, I did this and it was like the right thing. And what's something that you're like, I wish I would have done more of, or I would have done at all. That's a good question. Okay. Um, I'll start with the easier one, which is what I did wrong. (laughs) Um, no, when I, I think I, I wish that I were kinder to myself when I was in school. Um, I think that kind of goes with like, on one hand, I'm so incredibly thankful to have gone to school with such, with people that play at such high levels. Right. Um, I mean, you know, my freshman year of college, like the senior class was Ethan Bensdorf and Mike Martin and the grad students were Karen Blisnick and Jeff Strong. Like it's insane. And yeah, I remember not being super kind to myself, like in my self-talk kind of always thinking like, well, I'm not as good as these people. And I, I kind of struggled with that. So I think that, you know, all this stuff that I'm saying about trusting the process now i wish that if you know if i went back in time i kind of allowed myself to just trust that things were going to fall into place if i um if i did the process at the healthiest most efficient level right um as far as something that i wish that i or that i think that i did well in school um I don't feel like I ever lost that curiosity throughout school of 
wanting to hear different players' takes on different music, wanting to try different methods, wanting to try different etude books. Um, and I took, a, I took advantage of a lot of the resources that were at my disposal at school that I think that some that often people don't. So for uh, one thing that I often did was I would go to our, to the, like the school's library, to Northwestern's library, and I would use, um, I think it's called like world, the world catalog or the country catalog. Yeah. So I would get, I would order um, exercise book, method books, etude books from other libraries to be delivered to the Northwestern library for me to work on. Because I didn't, I mean, you know, one could practice Arben and Clark for a lifetime and never um, run out of things to work on, but I wanted to try everything that was out there to see what worked for me. So I was constantly getting new books in that I never had to pay for. You know, I would just rent them from the library and I, um, I would work on them. And if they worked for me, I would continue doing them. And if I, if they didn't, I would send them back. Um, and you know, again, like that thirst hasn't gone away. I still do that. I, I'm still constantly trying new things. Um, I mean, just like a week ago, um, I bought the Jim Thompson buzzing book. Like I've never played out of that before and I've been doing it every day and I'm noticing some big changes from doing that. And so I think just kind of that, um, never allowing yourself to say like, well, I've got I've got enough books. I've I've got enough exercises. I've got I know I know enough repertoire. You know, it, it constantly kind of just searching for things that are going to help you. I don't know. That, that's yeah. The me. buzzing base, the buzzing basics book is a great example of like there it, that can be polarizing, right? The idea of buzzing yes. your mouthpiece that much, and but so but then there's like I know people who do the buzzing basics book and they are successful and they sound great, but it's so easy for me to be like, well, that's them. Yeah, that would never work for me, you know, because yeah. like, oh, well, I don't want to buzz that much or I have some sort of like bias or predisposition towards this idea that it's like, well, I buzz a little where I'm someone who buzzes a little bit, totally not that much. And it's so easy to become dogmatic without even realizing it. That is such a great point. And I think I, I mean, it's so easy to do that in so many aspects. Like I don't play out of the beach book. I don't I don't do I'm not saying that I don't like like having these beliefs kind of that you hold that don't have any value whatsoever. It's just kind of what has happened. So, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I was a little afraid of working out of that book because I've never really buzzed more than when I need to, which is like the beginning of the day to attain response and throughout the day if I'm like missing something and I want to kind of make sure that I'm really hearing and producing it correctly. Um, yeah, I just think keeping like an open an open mind to like I will do anything that I find that helps. But the only way that I can really do that is by trying them. You know, and there yeah. are lots of books that I've gotten, methods that I've gotten that have not worked for me, so I just haven't continued with them. But like at least now I know that. I'm not saying I don't do book X because I've never done it before. 
Yeah, it's such an interesting point. This, I mean, we're sort of just speaking about limiting beliefs, but not even really oh. just them being limited, just the beliefs we hold about ourselves. Um, and I remember, you know, when I did, I didn't really ever see myself as a soloist, right? Mm -hmm. As a trumpet soloist. I was like, I sit in the back of the thing and I play like really loud and that's the thing that I do, right? Mm -hmm. And then when I won Elzor Smith, I was like, oh, I guess I could like do this, right? Like, it was so weird to me how the, the shift happened and it was just like, all I had to do is just change my mind, right? Yeah. I, I mean, yes, winning that competition is what did it, but I realized I could have just changed my mind. And the only difference was I just would have started working on pieces like that. Right. That's the only difference that would have happened. I wouldn't have been any better, but I might have been like, well, let's play a cornet solo and see what happens versus like, I don't do that. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is um, allowing yourself to be bad at something at first. You know, I think that that's something that often drives people away from, for instance, recording themselves in their practice sessions because it's not a good feeling that first time. And I mean, I, I literally remember the first time I recorded myself and <laughs> being on the verge of tears when I heard it back. I mean, it was like on a cassette player and just thinking like, is that really what I sound like? But it's the same thing with it, that you can apply that to anything. I mean, whether it's, Rather than saying, like, I can't play this piece, it's better to just start working on it and sound really bad at it and allow yourself to get better and better at it over time rather than, like you said, having this limiting belief of, I can't do that. Like, I think it's okay well, to I tell yourself, I can't do that yet, but not, yeah. I can't do that. Or I don't, I don't, I don't know, you can apply it to anything. You can apply it to, like, I don't like it when people say... I always do this piece like this. I always play this on this equipment or something. Like, just because you did something in the past doesn't mean that that's that it's a, a law now, you know? Yeah, like, just I feel always like I heard try this, things, yeah. I heard this story about Maurice Andre where he recorded a piece early in his career at one tempo, and then he recorded it at a different tempo later. Mm -hmm. And it was slower when he was older and, and someone asked him and he was like, why did you do this slower? And he's like, cause I'm older. <laughs> it's like some, <laughs> some ridiculous thing. But the idea that like, yeah, it, he doesn't have to necessarily perform it the same exact way for his entire career. You know, you're not what, well, but this brings up a bigger issue too, to me, which is this idea that sometimes, uh, I was just talking about this yesterday, um, Sometimes we can get locked into this idea that I decided when I was like 19 that this is the career path I wanted to pursue. Yes. And now I can't change my mind. <laughs> I'm yes. just, that's it. Like I've decided the rest of my the, life uh, when I was 19. Called the sunken fallacy or I can't remember. Yeah. Whatever. Sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. Cost yeah. Fa yeah. 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 Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I feel like I did that. I feel like I decided I want to be an orchestral player when I was a young and then a young person. I was like, well, that's it. Like, that's what I have to do with my life now because I said I was going to do it. And I mean, it's an it's a it's a a big picture version of what we're talking about here, but it's not true. Like, you can pursue that thing and then learn about it and then change your mind at any get. Though, yes. The problem with it is, and maybe you can speak to this. The problem is, is if you change your mind, like you go back to the start of something else, right? Yeah. So it's it's managing like I've invested a lot into this. Is it worth for me to, to to keep going or to start over with something else that might be quote better or more yeah. more joyful for me? And 
I would say, however, it's not really starting over because there are so many skills that we attain as musicians that are valuable in tons of other aspects of life. You know, I mean, I can't, there aren't that many other professions or fields where you are working as closely with other people as say playing in an orchestra, you know, or so like learning how, you know, learning how to interact with other people in a professional and efficient manner, uh, managing your time to learn the stack of music, things like that. Like you're, we, we learn lots of things that don't just pertain to our instrument that if we ever were to pivot and do something else, those skills are going to come along. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, even like the problem solving that goes on in the practice room, right. you know, the, the, the willingness to be vulnerable and say, here's what I'm actually doing as the recorder would say, now, how can I improve that? Like, that's a really hard thing to do that would be valuable in assessing maybe in business. Like, here's what we're doing. Here's why Absolutely. we're doing it. Let's assess if that's good and if we need to make any pivots. Like, I think that kind of creativity is really prized and valued by a lot of companies for people who can really, like, think outside of the box and find creative ways to solve problems. Yeah, and I think a lot of musicians don't even realize that they have those skills. You know, it's yeah. like they just kind of again it's it's easy to get so invested with your instrument that you kind of think well the only thing i can do is play the trumpet right but that's not true like there are all these skills that come into playing the trumpet or whatever instrument you play um that can be extracted for other use and that lots of people have that they kind of don't they haven't really realized can be useful in other aspects of life my cat is playing with a toy. If you hear <laughs> rumbling, that's all right. That's all right. Yeah, I think I think the flip side can can exist too, right? Like I've learned skills from other disciplines that I've used to enhance my music making and stuff. Uh huh. Um, I'm just yeah. taking the toy well, away. That's all right. All right, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I've got. I want to make a pivot here. We've been yeah. sort of we've been sharing about that. I want to make this pivot and I'd like, cause you and I have talked about this and I'd love to sort of have this conversation publicly about some of the realities of playing in an orchestra. Mm -hmm. um, because I had a particular idea of what that was going to be like when I was in school and very little of it actually turned out to be what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> this is what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be like school, but I would get paid money. That's what I thought it was going to be. And so it in turns out that's, I thought it was going to be like, we would all be best friends uh -huh, yeah. and like, we would all go out after the concert and go to <laughs> Las Palmas and like have to keep, you know, like I thought, and then, but I'd also get paid money to do that. And right. like the reality of losing some of that, I mean, the, every orchestra is different, but yeah. the reality of like, everyone's got their own lives and they have their own tribes and their own things going on that you're not going to have that same kind of um community at least i didn't and yeah. so that was like a hard thing because that's what i looked forward to the most and then so it's finding different motivations i know you and i talked about just the idea that you could be putting your heart and soul out there for other people to quote inspire them or to lift them up or to encourage or whatever but you never really get that kind of feedback right. about whether it's actually happening and so it can be you're just putting it out into the ether and hoping i'm just kind of curious what are some of the struggles that you have experienced uh, that you may not have anticipated 
yeah. um, beforehand? That's a good question. Um, so to your first point, that that was a big adjustment kind of like just getting into an orchestra when I was 22 and making that realization like, oh, everybody here has their own thing going on. Like I'm the new, I'm the new person. Everybody's been here and has their own family, has their own way of doing things. So yeah, so that was kind of, I had the same idea. Like I thought I was going to go to join this orchestra and I was just going to hang out with everybody all the time. And that's just not the case. So you have to be kind of, I found that I had to be really proactive at, you know, fleshing out the rest of my life, because I think that in school, it kind of allows you again, using the word identify, like to identify with your instrument or, you know, playing in an orchestra, playing in a band, whatever, that that suddenly creates this um, group of people that you can socialize with and um, lean on for support. And while you do have that in a professional setting, generally it goes away when you're not at rehearsal or concerts, right? Right, right. Um, yeah, so I think that, I don't think that there's like a solution to that as much as it's good to be aware that you don't, life isn't like school, you know, it, it, it's just, it's just not the same thing. And that you do have to make kind of different um, choices and go about meeting people in different ways and exposing yourself to different things in different ways um, because they're not going to be kind of presented to you on a platter like they are in school. Right. Um, and then to your other point about, I don't even know what to call it, like not getting the feedback that you normally do um, is really hard. And it's something that I, you know, having done this now for like over 10 years, still haven't completely gotten used to. Um, but I think I know how to handle it better. So yeah, you have this idea that everybody is going to feel how you're feeling when you play, or you want everybody to feel a specific thing. And the reality is that you just have absolutely no control over that, right? So if some really special piece comes up in programming for a season, for instance, like you want people to be as excited about it as you are. And you, you just can't control that. So it is kind of difficult. I mean, I mean, I remember, um, we played Bruckner six, one of my first years in the orchestra and like, what an incredible piece of music. And I was so excited to like, sh like share that with other people. And not that many people came to the concerts. Mm. And that was, I mean, you know, we want people to come to concerts, but that's also not the reason that we're doing it, you know? And I think that that the joy of um, appreciating and just loving the music that you're playing is infectious. So whoever's there is going to feed off of that joy that you're feeling, um, whether it has to do with, 
you know, the specific piece, the specific line of music, or just the joy of playing your own instrument. Um, I don't know, it, it brings to mind something that Chris Martin told me, which was that nobody ever takes it as seriously as you do. Nobody mm, will yeah, ever take yeah. it as seriously as you do. And on one, I, I remember kind of being disappointed by hearing that, but at the same time, it's, it's just a good thing to know. Like, nobody... Nobody holds in as high regard what you do as you do. So if we just kind of expect that if I care about everything, this, I guess this doesn't, I can't do hand motions if this is a podcast. <laughs> if I, uh, if I, um, if I care about this 100 care units and I know that, uh, the maximum people will other people will care about it is 90 carry units like i just it's good to know that like it's good to expect that it um it does it shouldn't insult or um or diminish the joy that you feel about the music that you're playing that other people don't feel the same seriousness about it because you just never know what other people are experiencing um while playing a Bruckner symphony, like you might feel like you want everybody to have the same emotions invested that you do while you're playing or, you know, know the amount of work that went into, um, you know, achieving that performance. It could just be that the person that you um, inspire the most is somebody who had a really bad day and came to the symphony to hear some nice music and that they don't yeah. know the first thing about the piece that was, that is being performed, but it means a lot to them to just hear a group of people playing live music. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 You spoke about control and this is one of the realities that hit the hardest for me is the reality that there's so little that I'm in control of in my job. Yeah. I mean, I don't get to just I don't get to pick what we play. I don't get to in some sense don't get to pick how much I'm paid. Like I don't get to pick if like people know, you know, people are in terms of like the people who are, you know, marketing it and like in control of all those things, how hard they're going to work for what it is. And so, you know, there's a lot of orchestras. I did a podcast on this. I know Milwaukee had uh, a number of years ago had some stuff going on, you know, financially. It's just like mm -hmm. orchestras. It's like a very sort of turbulent thing. Like you're never yeah. in a place where things couldn't just like become crazy all of a sudden. Right. And so it can feel like other spaces. Maybe it's like I started in the mail room and then I worked really hard and I got bumped up to here and bumped up to here. It's like yeah. you're as as principal trumpet. I've signed on that. That's the job I'm going to do. Right. And I'll have almost no control for my entire career. And like, are you like you said, there's no solution to it. It's just I think awareness is everything. That's what you're walking into. Right. And we as a society are going through this like uh, global reckon reckoning of um, figuring out that we have no control after COVID. You know, I mean, seriously, who, th who was seriously thinking about this happening? I mean, it, it's, you know, we knew that a pandemic was 
a possibility, but like some out external factor coming in and wiping out our livelihoods for a period of time wasn't something that most people were expecting. And right. continuing to go through this um, experience where things are more under control now, but they're still not like, we're still not out of the woods. It's still just this like constant murky passage that we're dealing with and realizing that we don't have control over it. Um, yeah, it's really difficult. I mean, it, I'm not going to like sit here and pretend like I figured out how to, <laughs> you know, I figured everything out in COVID. Like COVID was really difficult in a lot of respects. Um, and I've kind of, uh, I know this is like totally kind of taking a, a left turn to your question, but like I've for, for a while been thinking like, how do we come to terms with what has been happening over the last year and a half? Because I feel like for the most part, people are just kind of trying to go back to normal as much as possible and hoping that this doesn't happen again, hoping like pretending like it kind of didn't happen. But we had this kind of moment where we were all kind of forced to figure out what was important to us, you know? And yeah, I don't really know exactly where I'm going with this. So maybe you can <laughs> cut this out, but no, yeah. it's good. I mean, I mean, I would say just keep going with it. I mean, what kinds of things for you did you maybe that you were looking over when we were sort of just going through the motions that COVID really showed you yeah. or you feel like you appreciated more? So one thing I realized in uh, like around the summer of 2020, I realized this this was the longest, that was the longest period of time I had ever not uh, that I had ever gone without playing a live concert, like since I started playing music in fourth grade or something. And um, I don't know, it's kind of, it's tough when your whole life is one thing and then suddenly there's just this gigantic, colossal interruption. And so for for a while, I was like really confused, like, you know, because it, it happened all in slow motion, right? It was like this slow motion train crash of, <laughs> oh, we're not playing this concert this weekend. Oh, we're not playing next week's concert either. Okay, we're, we're not playing concerts this month. We're not playing for the rest of the season. Oh, we're not playing at the beginning of next season either. And like, just this, you know, like, what do you what do you do in that situation? And what I found was like, I just didn't stop practicing. And I, I realized that I was like, I wasn't, I was doing it because I liked it. And it was kind of this realization. It's so easy when you're in the thick of like, I have to learn this stack of music. I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to do this. Next week is this two weeks from now is that it's so easy to just get caught up in that. And forget why you're actually doing it and to suddenly have a bunch of time where you can kind of sit with that feeling of like why am i doing this like the world is kind of pointing to that this is not the career option at this point in time right yeah yeah but um 
yeah, I just kind of realized how much I really enjoyed doing it. And then once start things started coming back, it it kind of reinforced the idea that people are not in people don't come to concerts in order to judge you. People come to concerts because they want to enjoy what the service that you're providing, you know, and the same goes for the people around you that you're playing with. Like people aren't there in rehearsals to count the number of times that the, the trumpet players chip notes. Like they're there to create this thing that is greater than the sum of its parts. Um, and I think that in a really bizarre way, this pandemic kind of just instilled the fact that I, that this is supposed to be enjoyable and we're supposed to just be, we're, we're just supposed to be kind of sharing this, in, this joy with other people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For me, one of the interesting, I feel like an interesting thought that popped into my head during COVID was like, you know, I, I think people could rationalize and understand that like, maybe I will work hard, but maybe I won't get into like an orchestra, but that's okay. I can freelance or I could play at my church or I could do this, or I could go play at a nursing home. You know what I mean? I feel like people could figure out that performing will always be a part of what I do. Right. So performing is why I do what I do. But COVID I think was like, nah, that's not a thing. Like that can yeah. be taken away too. And so it really became clear to me that, you know, the desire to perform for others and with others is a very good motivation. But if it can be taken away from you, then hopefully people can use that to think about like, well, is there something like intrinsic that is also driving me or is it purely yeah. for the sake of other people? And like what you're describing is a very similar thing that I felt was like, actually, there is an intrinsic drive of wanting to get better and just love shaping the craft of what I'm doing. Yeah. Like, and enjoying the, the, the process, yeah, you know, it's yeah. not, I, I think that that's kind of, you know, that was something that was suddenly removed is like uh, prior to COVID, I just was in this flow of process performance process performance process performance and then suddenly it was just process yeah you know and if you don't enjoy that or you can't find a way to enjoy that that's a different issue you know and i think being able to take a step back and just kind of en enjoy the most basic quality of playing your instrument regardless of what it's going to yield you in your life, like that's, that's when you know that you really love something, you know? Um, I think also just like realizing the fragility of everything, you know, I know you didn't yeah. ask about COVID and for some reason I'm talking about it a lot, but um, yeah, it's just like everything is, we have to cultivate everything we do um, to get, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I just think it's, Feel I totally to cut out as much of this no, as this you is, want this. I'm not going to cut out okay. any of it. Um, yeah. What I, 
I totally agree with you. And I think it's like what I've been really focused on, especially in like these other things, like trying to share about these practice ideas and trying to get that to be things that people are aware of or whatever, right? And possibly be able to help supplement, you know, income and all that kind of stuff, right? Like that desire of mine, I still have to do the same thing of like love the process of figuring out how to better share my ideas with more clarity so people can actually connect with them, but also releasing like, well, what's going to happen with that? Like the feeling that it, it, like, I can't have the justification be that it leads to some certain outcome because that may not be the right outcome. That may not be the outcome that it's supposed to have. It may be a thing that leads me to another thing. It leads me to another thing, which leads me to the eventual outcome, but you don't get there unless you're only or mostly focused with the process of doing it. Cause like you're saying, it may take way longer than you want it to take to get where you're trying to go. And if you're, if you're expecting this outcome to be, to be there at any given time tomorrow or the next day or the next day, like it's a really tough way to go about doing things that you're just expecting the outcome rather than just like, it will happen when it's supposed to happen. I think I, yes, I totally agree with that. And then I, I also think that, um, it's easy to become so, uh, kind of infatuated with where you're going to wind up. Like, is is all of this work going to end up with me getting a job, for instance? And, like, we want to know the end result, but the reality is, even if you get that end result that you have in mind, as soon as you get there, you realize that that's not the end result. You know? Mm. Like, now, it, it, I, when you ask, um, you know, what's something you kind of, like, wish you did better in school or something. I wish that I hadn't put so much emphasis on just getting a job because it, because I didn't even really consider what having a job would be like, Yeah, yeah. you know, and in the grand scheme of things, me getting a job was the small percentage of time versus now this really long period of time where I'm having to, where I had to learn how to manage being in a job. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a good point. You know, it's, I mean, you and I were fortunate to win jobs relatively early. So mm-hmm. it, it's like, well, especially you, you know, at 22, um, it can be, it's a different perspective looking back on it rather than like we, you know, 20 years of freelancing and finally winning a job. But mm-hmm. It's so true. You know, I just had this idea in my head and this thing motivated me more than anything else. Like I I sacrificed friendships and relationships yeah. and, and I sacrificed like my health and all these types of things at the altar of winning a job. And then I right. got the job and I was like, wait, it's not what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. <laughs> and everything just like collapsed. It's like you. It, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that it's the whole pie. And then when you get there, you realize that it's a small part of the pie. You know, it's yeah. a small part of your life. And I think that that's why I feel, I feel like it's really important to, for younger people to realize that this, it's important for this not to become your entire identity. It's okay if it's a lot of it or even most of it, but not all of it because you, a, you never know when something like COVID is going to happen, you know, right. talking about the fragility of things. And then B, you know, what happens when you realize this 
when you realize a dream. Like that's to be frank, it's like when I was in school, I didn't even think I would be able to get a job. And then I had to figure out what life is like once I had one because I just never thought about it. Yeah, right, right. No, I just think this kind of conversation, I mean, a lot of what I've tried to share is like, how would I talk to myself at Tanglewood, you know, and yeah. be like, hey, some of the things you value right now, we should talk about valuing <laughs> different things. Um, because, but it's just like, I don't think that was possible, but I think it's still right. worth sharing because there might be some people who are willing to consider the idea that like, if we put a little less emphasis on the result of our efforts and a little, or a lot more emphasis on refining the process of getting there. Yeah. Like not only is not only will you probably be able to re re reach that result, but I just think you'll have a better relationship with everything along the way. Right. That that's a great point. And I think that reminding yourself that you can always improve your relationship with your craft or your instrument, like it's not just what it is, right? So yeah. that means that if you don't have a great relationship with your craft or your instrument, you can take steps to make it better. But it also means that if you do have a great relationship with it, you can't just take that for granted and expect that it will be like that forever. Like you have to take steps to maintain yeah. that love. Um, and again, for me, like that maintenance is going through the process and taking time. I mean, one of the things that I did over COVID a lot was like, listen to recordings. And that's something that I realized I kind of stopped doing, um, other than when I was like studying a piece that I was going to mm -hmm. play. Um, yeah. And like having time to suddenly go back to um, the go back to experiencing the medium that really made me fall in love with symphonic music helped over the pandemic really helped my uh, kind of philosophical connection with the craft. Yeah, that's so cool. I remember Barbara saying. Um, like, I remember asking at one point, like, am I on the right path? Like, am I going to win a job or something? And I remember she said, um, you're asking me to tell you what your last chapter is, and that's not how this works. Mm. You know? She like, said that to you? Yeah, like, she... Like, you're I feel like the, Im the image I have of Barbara, I feel like, would be like, yes, you are. You mm. know what I mean? Like, I, it's like, I kind of see her as being, like, always, like, yes, we're doing great, To for her to be like... I can't necessarily say that. I think is that's pretty cool that she would say that. Yeah, I mean, I think that she also has this magical quality that she knows how to interact with her students individually in order to give them what they need the most. And I mm. think at the time, that's what I needed to hear because, because if she had told me, yes, you're going to win a job, I would have left the room thinking she's lying to me <laughs> like i wouldn't have believed it you know like um yeah so uh i just i think like living with that uncertainty is just something we have to do um yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Dude, this has been awesome yeah this is wonderful thank I'm you so, so much glad for having that we me got on. to do this um 
we could do another part someday in the future, mm. but I'm gonna let I you go and, and do your life. So if there's anybody who's listened to this and said, uh, David sounds very amazing. Uh, <laughs> I really enjoy everything he said and they wanted to connect with you in some way, how would they do that? Um, that's a great question. Um, they could always email me. I don't know. I'm not a big uh, social, I'm not on social media. So I guess email is the only medium that I could How offer. How about this? Yeah. You could e you could send me a message and I will relay yes, it please, to David. Please do that, yeah. That'll, and that'll I, be... for the record, I love talking about this kind of stuff. And, you know, when, Brian, when you and I talk on the phone, I feel like it's like we can get into these hour upon hour conversations of just talking about this. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Please no, reach I think, out and... if, if I can do anything. And I think there's, I think they're important conversations. I mean, I'm, I'm not interested in like, sh you know, bashing this or bashing that. I, I just think it's important that we sort of express the reality of what certain things are, at least for our experience, so that people don't go into the thing thinking it's something that it's not, but rather can prepare themselves to be ready to step into, like, for an example, with us talking about the jobs, I'm not saying people shouldn't become somebody who wants to or shouldn't pursue that i'm saying if they recognize that they're going to lose a little bit of their community and they might like have to figure out some sort of like love of the craft it might prepare them to start having those conversations with themselves sooner yeah. so that they can flourish in that rather than be like depressed like i was for a number of years before yeah, i kind of yeah. figured it out anyway um so reach out to david and or reach out to me and then i'll reach out to david and then i'll connect you to if <laughs> Um, if you need to get in touch with me, you can do that on Facebook, uh, That's Not Spit, on Instagram at That's Not Spit, or That's Not Spit.com. Uh, if you enjoy this episode, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes, and don't forget to share this on social media so other people can find it for themselves. David, thank you so much thank for you. chatting with me. This is awesome. Thanks, man. Love you, buddy. Yeah, buddy. Um, I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast, uh, and he's going to have his work cut out for him slightly here. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I'd like to thank you most of all for listening. Uh, stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>